0: Good evening. I was, um, I I said this at a life group the other night that I was visiting. Um, It's nothing to do with the sermon, it's just a little side that, maybe it's a music thing, I don't know, but sometimes when you hear musicians playing, it's like, it feels like, um, it feels like everything's perfect in that moment. Do you know what I mean? When they're playing and they're worshipping and they're using their gifts and they're making a joyful sound, it sounds amazing. And just for me, that's something about the perfection of humanity in that moment before their creator, you know, offering their gifts back. So um, thank you very much, worship team, for, for leading us like that. So, um, we continue uh, looking at Mark's Gospel, and we turn to chapter 9. And I'd like us to start with this picture, which only came to me five minutes before the service, so I'm not sure whether we managed to sort it. We did. You may have seen this picture. Um, there's quite a few like this. It's, it's nothing new. It goes around. Um, and uh, w- at first glance, you, it's probably actually, because it's so blown up there, you can probably tell straight away what it's meant to be. But if you've seen these pictures, at first glance, you see these, um, these dark, uh, sort of animals walking that way. And when you actually go closer, which you can probably tell because it's so big, they're actually, the, the dark ones are the shadows, and it's actually the shadows, the white things underneath are actually the animals themselves. And and it's a kind of bit of an optical illusion. Have you seen things like that online or whatever, it's social media? So um, I, I love these pictures. That, it's a shame it's so blown up because it does give it away. When you see it on your phone or like on a screen, you don't really see. You just see these black animals and then you see the, the zebras which are underneath. But actually the zebras are the animals, not the shadows. And um, something like that is happening a little bit in our, some of you are like, What's he talking about? So, so there's a little bit of that which is happening in our in our reading this evening. Because what we're going to look at is a passage in Mark 9, which is called the Transfiguration. And um, I'm going to try and keep it really simple because I want us to respond. So I'm going to do the sermon in two halves. Very half, a little bit of introduction, and then we're going to respond in a certain way. We're going to look at the Transfiguration, and I'm going to take you through each bit of the story as it happened. So this is what happens. What we see is that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. Uh, I think we've got this, please, Daniel. Thank you. Next slide. Uh, with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. Now, this is unusual um, that Mark is, that, is this detailed in his gospel. Normally, he's a bit vague. He doesn't bother about details. But here, he's very specific. After six days, and this is important because if you remember last week, Rob was talking about Jesus predicting his death. And so this is six days after he's done that, which is really important. But it's also really important because some people thought the transfiguration was just made up. But the fact that Mark says it's six days is a detail he's put in to say this really happened. It really happened six days after the previous thing that really happened. And he takes with them Peter, James, and John. And these are the three disciples that were probably most intimately close with Jesus when he walked on earth. These were the three disciples, for example, that when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, they were there. These are the three disciples who just a little time after this event would be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, watch and pray when he was overcome with sorrow facing his crucifixion. And whilst they're up on the mountain, we read that there Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, transfigured simply means the same word as transformation. It's the same word we get, metamorphosis. That's what it means. It means to change from one thing into another form. So what was the change that came over Jesus? Well, the the change was simply that he became dazzling white, whiter than anything humanly possible, and if that wasn't dramatic enough, Jesus is there in this amazing white, white, bright light. And what happens is there appears before them Elijah and Moses, two prophets who had died centuries beforehand. They appear on the mountain with Jesus, talking with Jesus. Jesus. And uh, Luke's gospel actually tells us that we're talking about Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection. But we don't know that in Mark's passage. Now Peter, in his typical kind of impetuous and slightly kind of panicky and not knowing what to do kind of way, goes, uh, let's, let's build some tents for you. Let's build some shelters for you. And one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses, and it'll all be good. And the reason he does this is partly because he, um, he didn't know what else to say. He was a little bit bewildered, as, as you would have been. Um, by seeing these dead guys and Jesus in this bright light. But um, two reasons why he might have said that. One was because the whole thing about um, putting up tents was reminiscent of the old ancient Israelite uh, festivals, which they had to remember what Jesus had done for, what God had done for them in the past. So that's one reason. The other reason might simply be was that he was loving this moment. For that moment, he was there with Jesus as bright as anything, with Elijah and Moses. And he did not want that mountaintop experience to go away. He wanted that to last forever. And somehow he thought, if we build tents or shelters for these people, they'll sit in them and we'll just be here forever. And it's just amazing. But before um, he can get much further, his thoughts are interrupted by the fact that a cloud appears and covers them. And in the middle of the cloud, they hear this voice from God. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's the voice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And of course, those of you who've been journeying with Mark's gospel with us over the last few weeks will remember that this takes us back to Jesus' baptism, where a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son, not this is my son, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The difference is back at Jesus's baptism, this was the voice of God speaking to his son. You are my son who I love. But here on the mountain, it's not talked to Jesus, addressed to Jesus. It's addressed to, uh, to Peter, James and John. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This experience on the mountain with the bright lights and the tents, the suggestion of the tents for Elijah and Moses, this was about the disciples learning something. This was about their spiritual education. This was about their spiritual revelation. And at which point the cloud must have lifted because we read uh, in the next verse, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So Elijah and Moses had disappeared. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now we read in the next verse they followed this instruction. They had just been told by God to listen to Jesus, so it was pretty good that they followed his instructions. And they didn't, because in verse 10 it says they kept this matter to themselves. Those three disciples, it was their secret, if you like. It was they kept it between themselves. But we read on that they did discuss between them what Jesus had meant about rising from the dead and the Son of Man rising from the dead. It's interesting, isn't it? Because just six days earlier, Jesus had explained about his death and rising from the dead. And Peter had even argued with him about it. But now six days later, they still don't get it. They still don't understand that this Jesus rabbi that they'd been following was gonna have to die. It just didn't work in their worldview. You see, their worldview was that the Messiah would come in triumph, kick out the the Roman occupiers, bring about the kingdom of God, be triumphant and victorious, a battle king. And here, Jesus kept inferring to this thing that he was going to have to suffer and die, and it didn't fit their worldview of what the Messiah was going to do. And so they kept discussing it amongst themselves about what this could mean. It's an incredible passage, I think, Um, and we're only going to scratch the surface of it. But I just want to raise four things because this passage is incredibly rich in symbolism. And you probably picked up some of those symbols already. It's so much meaning. It's almost dripping with meaning. And there's four particular things that I'm going to go through quickly, and then we're going to do something completely different. This is the first one. The first one is the mountain. The mountain is hugely, hugely symbolic. Because a mountain, wherever you read about a mountain in the Bible, it is about God's revelation. If you look back to the Old Testament, so many encounters with God happened on the mountain. It happened to Moses. The Noah's ark landed on a mountain. Elijah fought the prophets of Baal on a mountain. The mountain is a consistent theme throughout the whole of the Bible as the place where God reveals himself. So this is important. What's happening at the transfiguration is God is revealing himself to Peter, James, and John. That's the first thing. The second symbolism is the brightness which reckon, uh, represents the glory of God. Wherever we see something so bright and white, it represents the glory of God. What was happening here, the disciples? What a privilege, three! Wouldn't you have just given everything to have been Peter, James, and John at that moment? The disciples were given a glimpse into Jesus' divinity, his divine glory, the glory that was given to him by God. We read this in Hebrews, that the Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I think we've got that on the screen, please, Daniel. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. What this experience up the mountain was saying is, this isn't an ordinary rabbi. This man who you've been following isn't an ordinary person. He is the fullness of God. He is, because he is so bright, that tells you something about his glory. And because he is glorious, that means he is God. The fact that both Elijah and Moses appear is also hugely, hugely significant. Both Moses and Elijah had met God on a mountain, as I said. And, but more than that, Moses and, Eli- and Elijah represented God's bringing in of his kingdom. Now, Jesus himself said, if we keep this up, that would be great. Thanks, Daniel. Jesus had said that he came not to get rid of the law, not to get rid of the prophets from the Old Testament, the Old Testament writings. He said, i am not come to get rid of them. I've come to fulfill those things. And what we have in Moses and Elijah is they represent those two things. It's so important that it's Moses and Elijah and not anyone else from the Old Testament. That they represent them things. Now Moses is the representative of the law. But more than that, Moses is the one who led God's people out of slavery towards the promised land. Moses represents God's law, but he also represents God's salvation, his rescue plan. That's what Moses represents. Elijah represents something different. He represents the prophets, but also he represents the, res- the restoration and reconciliation of all things. Let me read this from, um, next slide please, Daniel, from Malachi. It says this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn, and this is about reconciliation and restoration. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents. What Elijah represented was a reconciliation between broken things. And so in Elijah and Moses, we have the law and the prophets, but we have the salvation plan of God, and we have the restoration, reconciliation plan of God coming. Jesus' death and resurrection covered both those things. He didn't lead us into a physical promised land. He leads us into an eternal promised land. And he doesn't just bring about restoration between people who've fallen out or, or nations or communities. He brings about restoration of all things. And that's what Jesus did. Now, this next point is slightly technical. I wasn't going to say it, but it, it just, it excite, this next bit excited me. You can switch off for, for two minutes whilst I say this next bit because it's, it's, it doesn't really matter, but it's just exciting. Get this, right? Okay. Okay. And to get this right, it's so dark up here, I can't see my notes. Right, here we go. Um, Moses, his job was to bring people out of, the promi- out of the slavery towards the promised land. But he, what happened? He didn't take them into the promised land. He took them to the mountain and overlooked the promised land, but he himself never actually went into the promised land. Who took over from Moses. Very good. Be a bit more confident. That's fine. Joshua, okay? Joshua took over from Moses. So Moses set out the work, but Joshua fulfilled the work, completed the work. Okay, so far so good. Now let's talk about Elijah. Elijah also came to bring about restoration and reconciliation, but he also... Oh, you turned the lights on. Thank you very much. That's now a bit bright. Um, it's glorious. It's a transfiguration. Um, so it's, it's happening. Um, so anyway, Elijah. Elijah also didn't complete his work. Who took over from Elijah's work? You're so good. That's brilliant. Okay, Elisha. Now, Jesus, no one completes Jesus' work. No one comes after Jesus because Jesus did it all. He completes the work of Moses and Joshua. He completes the work of Elijah and Elisha. Joshua means the Lord saves. What does Elisha mean? The Lord saves. Elisha is the same name as Joshua, just in a different way. And what does Jesus mean? The Lord saves. What does that mean? Joshua. Isn't that brilliant? And it doesn't matter to what I'm saying generally, but I love that about the Bible. <laughs> Isn't that? Yes, the Bible. Hey, we're going to applaud. It's fantastic. That Joshua completed Moses' work, and that was fulfilled with Joshua. Joshua completed Elijah's work, and that was fulfilled by Joshua. And Jesus is Joshua, and it means the Lord saves. That's why it's so important that Moses and Elijah were up the mountain with Jesus. Okay, last one. So those are three. So the mountain's important. The glory, the brightness is important. Moses and Elijah are important. The last bit of symbolism is the cloud, And the cloud throughout the Bible is a symbol of God's presence. And we can read this throughout the Old Testament. It was in the cloud that God had given his instructions to the people in the wilderness. And so now Peter, James, and John up this mountain with Jesus experience the fullness of God's presence in that brief moment. And they also receive instruction from God. In that place, just like Moses centuries before had received God's instruction in the cloud, Peter, James, and John received God's instruction in the cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. When Moses went up on the mountain in Exodus 24, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on it, and the Lord called or spoke to Moses from within the cloud. Numbers 11.25, I think this is on the screen. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. The cloud is a symbol of God's presence, but where God speaks to his people and gives them instructions. And the instructions that he simply gives to Peter, James, and John is this guy here, this rabbi you've been following, this Jesus who is your close friend, he's not just a rabbi, he's not just your close friend, he is God. Listen to him. He is God. Listen to him. This is my son. It's a beautiful thing, I think. Jesus is so endorsed at this moment. He's endorsed at his baptism. He's endorsed here. It's like the father is saying, I'm so proud of you, Jesus. This is my son. And and Jesus would have known that the Romans were about to reject him, reject him so much they were going to put him to death. Jesus knew that the Jewish authorities had rejected him. And they knew that they were going to turn their back on him even though he'd come to save them and he viewed them as lost sheep. But God the Father doesn't reject him. He endorses him. This is my son. Listen to him. Such a powerful passage. Now, halfway there. We're not, we're not over halfway. We're going to finish there, really. We don't have a mountain at SML. SML. But we do have steps. Um, so I want to finish the sermon with us up on the steps. Do you mind? Will you all come up the top with me? Um, two things to say before we move. You don't have to come up the steps. It's absolutely fine to stay sitting in your seat if that's you. Because some people, sometimes you like, some people just like sitting at the back, and that's absolutely fine. When Kate and I go to a church, which we're not our church, another church um, she likes to sit in the front because she's not that tall I like to sit at the back because I hate sitting in the front because I'm so tall um, relatively tall um, so you might just want to stay hidden at the back and that's absolutely fine but if you're feeling confident I'd love you to come and join me up here and we're going to look at one last thing um, there's one or two people who I know may struggle with the steps so can we be a loving community to each other and help those people up if they're stuck and then we can all gather around the cross so let's, let's make our way up if you want to come and fill the whole space up there that would be brilliant Great. Brilliant. Yeah. You, want to let, you formed two sorts of lines. I wanted more of a huddle. Let's close up the huddle a bit. That'd be nice. That's, that's lovely. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Now, um, thank you for, for being obedient. That's, that's brilliant. I love the control. Everyone goes, you know, it's like such power. Come up the top and everyone goes, yeah, all right, we'll do that. Uh, what else could I get away with? Okay. We're going to do two things. I want to say one more little final wrap up the sermon and then we're going to pray. This is what the transfiguration means. I've talked about the symbolism, I've talked about what happens and all the rest of it, but this is what it means, okay? This is what it means. And this is why I showed the picture of the zebras at the beginning. Because when we look at that picture of zebras, we think we're looking at one thing, and then we realize what the other thing is, and it's so much better, it's actual zebras, not just shadows of zebras. And I think that's what this story does. This story for me says to Peter, James, and John, and it says to all of us, it says, this is who you thought Jesus was. But in that moment up the mountain, they fully understand exactly how incredible Jesus is and the fullness of who he is. The transfiguration is a revelation of the glory of God in Jesus. It says, it speaks, I was about to say it speaks volumes, but that doesn't do it justice. It speaks infinitely infinitesimally about God's divinity, about Jesus' divinity, about his glory. He is not just a rabbi. He is fully God in human form and he is glorious. The problem is for Peter, James, and John and the other disciples at that time is they didn't really understand the fullness of that. And I think we're the same. I think sometimes we don't always see the fullness of God and his glory, of Jesus in his glory. And we kind of box him in, I think. But Jesus is incredible. Now, if you only, we, we can only expect to see a limited version, maybe a shadow. The Bible's clear about that. 1 Corinthians 13, for example. Now we see only a reflection then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know him fully. But we don't have that yet completely. But on that mountaintop, Peter, James and John were blessed with fully seeing God, fully seeing Jesus in his glory. But not only is that a confirmation of what Jesus is, the transfiguration also was a confirmation for them about what they'd experienced up to that point and what was about to happen. It's about truth. It is about finally understanding that this man, Jesus, and all that he'd done up to that point, all the miracles we've been hearing about, all the things he'd been doing, the way he commanded the winds and the waves, the way he'd driven out demons, the way he'd fed 5,000, all the things he'd taught them and done, that was because he was God. And it was like a confirmation of that. This transfiguration confirmed that he wasn't just some magician. He wasn't just a clever miracle worker. He is God. And also it confirms that what he was about to do on the cross was God's plan for him. This was was God's way. This was the only way God could bring about salvation and restoration and reconciliation was through what Jesus was about to do. So the transfiguration is about a revelation of who Jesus is, but it is a confirmation of what he has done and what he continues to do in the future. So what we're going to do now is this. We are going to, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit of God to come on us. And when we were praying beforehand, someone had a picture. Rob shared a few, but there was another one of the, the Holy Spirit being like a dove, but like being a massive dove. And the simple word was, sometimes we think the Holy Spirit's like a little dove, and we go, that's for me, my little dove, my little, John's little dove, you know, nice. But actually, the picture was saying that actually the the Holy Spirit isn't a little dove. He is a massive dove who wants to come and and drench us. That's mixing metaphors, probably, with, with doves and drenching. Not sure what that means, but do you know what I mean. So, so, the Holy Spirit wants to come here and meet with all of us. And those of you who felt that you wanted to stay down there, which is absolutely fine. The Holy Spirit wants to meet you down in the seats as well. The Holy Spirit won't just meet us up here. So, um, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna ask God to reveal His glory, just a glimpse, and we're gonna ask God to reveal His truth to confirm in us what we know about Jesus and what we know about his death and resurrection and confirm that that is truth. And there may be one or two of you have never accepted that as the truth, but I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal God's truth to you as we pray. W- one more instruction. Sorry, lots of instructions, but I want, I want us to get this right. I want this to be ordered and not just you feel that we're taking advantage or anything. If you when i start to pray in a moment if you would like to go back to your seats that's absolutely fine please don't you know you've come up you're brilliant thank you and and you can go back to your seats you may want to just stay here and be on your own and just wait on the presence of the holy spirit for a few moments and if that's the case what i'd love you to do is just put your hands down like that or in your pockets or fold your arms just just down it doesn't matter how you stand but just your hands down however it might be that one or two of you actually want someone to pray with you that they, that you would Feel that because sometimes we can have our brothers and sisters to kind of confirm that, and if that's you, I'd love you to stand with your hands open as a sign that you want someone to come and pray really briefly with you, and they will just pray a very simple prayer and move on to the next person. And those people who will do that is the three people with uh, green badges on who are on the ministry team, me and Rob, and. I, th- I think that's, Susie, your ministry team as well, fantastic, brilliant. Um, so we're going to just walk around. Actually, Michelle and Richard, you haven't got badges on, but you, but you can do it as well. We're just going to walk around, and if your hands are open, we're just going to pray a simple prayer of God's blessing on you. So you've got a choice now. You can either go back to your seats. You can say, I want to be here. I want to just wait on God's presence, but I don't want to be prayed for. And then you put your hands down. Or you can put your hands out, and someone will come and pray gently, very gently with you. Does that make sense? Okay, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the Bible. I love the Bible. What an incredible, incredible book it is. And I love the way it's so intricate and complex and, and reveals so much stuff about who you are, Jesus, and who we are before you. And so I thank you for this passage from Mark and this amazing story of the transfiguration. And Lord, we want to experience your glory just a glimpse like Peter, James, and John did 2,000 years ago. And we, God, want to experience your confirmation of truth, that what you did on the cross was necessary and it was true and it was right and it was, it was powerful and it was effective for our salvation and our reconciliation. And so I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come like a massive dove and fill us as we stand here. Come, Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh revelation of your glory, Jesus. Come Holy Spirit.